Welcome back to Talk of the Town on 99.7 and 1450 WHTC on WHTC.com and on the WHTC app for your smartphone. Once again, here's your host, Gary Stevens. Welcome back to Talk of the Town for this Friday, March 1st. On the first Friday of the month, our segment this time around is spotlighting the Holland Department of Public Safety, and we go to police services today for Captain Bob Burstman on the other side of our table this morning. Good morning, Robert. Morning, Gary. Glad to be here again. Glad you are with us. If you have a question about law enforcement in the Tulip City or law enforcement in general, Captain Burstman will be happy to answer it at 616-395-1450, 616-395-1450. From time to time, I see press releases from other law enforcement agencies, and I see a familiar name. Oh, well, that's where he went. Happened to me yesterday. Got a press release from the city of Wayland about a missing 81-year-old woman who had dementia. There was concerns. Uh, they did find her safely and has returned her to her family. But it was signed Chief Scott Matisse of the Wayland Police Department. I remember Scott Matisse with the Allegan County yes. Sheriff's Department. was not that long ago that he worked <laughs> for Allegan. It leads me to your first point you want to talk up about people moving on from the Holland Department of Public Safety to other jobs and other yes. opportunities. Yeah, so we had yesterday the retirement uh, gathering for Captain Rick Walters. He was with our agency for the last 33 years. The last, I think it's been, he was promoted a captain in 2003. So 21 years uh, that he's been a captain and about the last 14 years running the Detective Bureau. And uh, he recently, it was earlier than his initial plan, but uh, sometimes when law enforcement uh, individuals are getting a bit more experience and been around a while, uh, other opportunities can present themselves. And he uh, has taken a position as the assistant director of campus safety over at Hope College. So uh, we're glad that he had that opportunity and um, wish him well in that endeavor at the same time. It, uh, it's always hard to see people go. It was interesting. I was there right at the beginning of the gathering, and we had a large number of retirees uh, showing up to it. So it's always good to see some of them coming back. Uh, but then that also creates new opportunities, of course. There's one constant in life. It's change. <laughs> We're all familiar with that. Uh, Captain, or now Captain, Chris Hagland is now promoted and has taken over investigations. He's been a detective sergeant for the last... I'm not even sure how many years, uh, but even back before that, when he started, if you recall, back in uh, uh, the late 2000s, early 10s, I guess. I'm not, <laughs> not sure the correct term, but he was a huge part of the team that did uh, uh, the investigation with our organization and the ATF uh, into the Latin King organization. So he has now taken over investigations. Great background in doing that, and we know that he's going to do very well in that role. And of course, then that creates a sergeant opening. And uh, Officer Santiago Magdaleno has now been promoted to patrol sergeant. Uh, he joined us, I think it was about 2014. Last number of years, he's been one of our crime scene or evidence technicians, did very well. And uh, so, yeah, he's now a road sergeant. So, 
And I tell you what, of all the moves that I made over the years, the one that probably is the most memorable is when you get promoted to sergeant. Um, I still vividly remember that when Chief Kreidoff promoted me back in uh, 2004. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to remember exactly when that was. 2000XX. <laughs> yes, it's been a couple of years. Um, but yeah, so we're excited for Santiago and uh, we're confident he will do well. Continuing along the lines of the moving in of people, a few couple of years ago, there was a problem, and it's still a problem with some departments, about trying to get men and women, young men and women, to yep. pursue a law enforcement career. Happy to say, probably not the case with Helen right now, is it? Well, like everybody else, we're having challenges. Um, the applicant pool, and this is true in so many industries right now, um, finding qualified applicants can be challenging. Um, and the number of recruits coming out of the academies on an annual basis statewide is just not adequate. Um, so it's unlike 20 years ago where police administrators would, administrators would get stacks and stacks of applications and resumes, we have to actively go out and try to recruit people. So we have a whole recruiting team that that's a large part of what they do. But we've been fairly successful at uh, trying to keep our ranks uh, at least close to full staff we have currently uh, three individuals who have accepted conditional offers from us to fill our current vacancies, and all those uh, individuals will be starting the police academy in April. And then when that, that runs till about, it's about the first or second week of August, and then they will be completing that and starting our field training program. So, you know, we're doing well, but, you know, getting back to uh, Rick's retirement party and as I was there and uh, talking to people, Chief Lindstrom was there, who, of course, was the chief of police for our organization mm -hmm. from 1972 to 1996. And Chief Kreidoff was there, 1996 to 2009. And, of course, Chief Messer, our current chief, since, since so that time. So the continuity is in there. Right. So you have this line of prior department heads. You know, as I just look back and reflect on those individuals and the impact that they've had not only on our organization, but our culture, and then the impact that that has on the community um, at large because of that. Chief, Cry or Chief Lindstrom, when he took over in 1972, he came to the city, I think it was in his early 30s, had a, a master's degree in public administration, sort of, I think, thinking outside the box, the city fathers at the time made a good choice in what they did going outside, bringing somebody in who could turn the department into a professional organization. And that's what Chief Lindstrom did. Um, one of his early focuses was we're going to hire applicants who have college degrees. Under his tenure, if you didn't have a college degree, and it continues to this day, uh, you would not be considered. Even though Michigan MCOL's requirements, you only have to have a high school diploma. But he wanted to have those that uh, had that education but then also provide training, equipment, um, and, and the tools needed to do the job well. He's the one that started our evidence technician program. Just by way of an example, I started at a different law enforcement agency. It was actually out of state. Uh, this was back in 19, well, let's just say somewhere in the 1990s. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I still remember getting off field training and the captain calling me into her office and handing me this little kit. It was a fingerprint kit. And it says here, so when you're taking 
burglaries, home invasions, whatever, you know, something where you need to take fingerprints. Here's your kit. Go forth and fingerprint. Mm. And I looked in the box and I'm like, how do I do that? Mm. I, I don't know how to fingerprint. Well, go talk to the sergeant of the detective bureau. Yeah. So I went into the detective bureau and talked to the sergeant there and like, hey, captain sent me over here. How do I, how do I take fingerprints? Let, let me show you. So he hauls me into the conference room and my training consisted of about four minutes of him demonstrating how taking fingerprints when you're doing quickly doesn't work very well. No. Um, but in the end he was like, yeah, just practice with it. You'll figure it out. <laughs> uh, so, and that was the time. Sum, that times was a, have changed. Yeah. So that was the sum total of my time of how to fingerprint. I clueless. Whereas under chief Lindstrom, we took individuals who, you know, they're sworn police officers. We were not large enough to this day of an organization to have like full time crime scene techs, but we take police officers who their primary duty is taking police calls and responding, but we're going to give them extra training in taking photographs, taking castings, taking fingerprints so that we have those tools and uh, skills available to us to be able to handle calls in an appropriate and professional way and have the skill set to do it. And really, Lindstrom was a huge part of that. And then when Chief Kreidoff took over in 1996, one of the things that he really focused on, we heard a lot about it from him as chief. And it was talking about, as police officers, what we're looking for, there's, there's two pillars, is the way he would describe it, of making a solid police officer. One is the pillar of competency. You can do the job. You have the requisite skills and knowledge and training. The other is the pillar of character. And he say, you know, we can give you the competency. We can send you to trainings. We can give you the skills. We can't give you integrity. You either come in the door with it or you don't. And so his focus was very much hiring individuals of character and who have integrity and honesty and professionalism and treat people with respect. That was his focus. And, of course, Chief Messer has now continued that with uh, our core values and uh, so many of the other programs that we have done. I mean, and that I, I think that what those three individuals have done has created who we are and created our culture and even within the law enforcement community, the way our department is viewed statewide and why when it comes to recruiting, we're still doing pretty well. Um, there's people that want to work for us. And I think, I think all those things combined really play into that, that, uh, um, that made us what we are today. If you got a question for Holland Police Captain Bob Bursma, 616-395-1450, 616-395-1450. I think some of what these three leaders have given to the Holland Police efforts has spared Holland, for the most part, some of the issues that other departments across the country have had with community policing issues. Uh issues dealing with uh, uh, police brutality and police harassment and the like. We don't see that for the most part here. And to a certain extent, you pretty much explained why through <laughs> the leadership of the, of the, of the chiefs it filters down throughout the entire department. Yes. You know, and there's, there's plenty of great organizations um, out there. Um, when police officers screw up and do something really bad or do something really stupid, um, it often makes the news, right? Unlike many other professions. And if it's a really bad mess up, it makes national news. 
And for me in my role, as I watch some of these situations unfold and watch the media coverage and hear about what happened in these situations, one of my questions as a police administrator is I sit back and go, referring back to Chief Kreidoff, which pillar failed? Which one was it? Was it the competency pillar or was it the character pillar? And the reality is for me, and granted, you know, in a lot of these situations, I'm not privy to specific information. I'm watching the same coverage everybody else is seeing, so I only know what's uh, out in the news media. But so often I look at it and I see, I think there was a character issue there. And I think that played into that. But at the same time, I've seen instances too. It's like, no, this was a competency issue. This is a failure on the part of the organization to adequately train somebody and I look and go, because with us, when we change, like, for example, when we switched to tasers and added that as a tool on our belt, we did hours upon hours of training because when you are in a situation and when you're under stress, you will respond how you're trained. You don't have time to think through it. Your prefrontal cortex, if you're familiar, kind of shuts down and you're more responding on instinct. So how you respond is based on how you're trained. Well, if you're not adequately training somebody, how are they going to respond? They probably don't know, right? Because we're not sure how we're going to respond until you're under stress. But if you're trained and you train and you train and you train, then we know how you're going to respond. Um, we do this thing. We still do it. It's called bag drills. We started this mm. years ago where you're in a room and the instructors put a bag over your head, big duffel bag, mm -hmm. why we call it bag drills. And then they rip the bag off your head and you're confronted with a threat. Mm. Could be somebody with a gun, a knife, you know, or gun at their side or in their waistband or a bowling pin or just their hands up or somebody runs up behind and grab you. You have no idea what's going to happen. And now you have to right now respond appropriately. You can't say, you know, time out, hold on. Yeah. Let me check the manual and see how I'm <laughs> supposed to appropriately respond. No, you have to know in that moment and doing those repetitions over the years, over and over and over and over and over again leads to appropriate response. Um, and so, like I said, I, I watched some of these situations and how you'll see officers respond inappropriately. And I got, they didn't train that officer properly. Let's get to the phone. 616-395-1450. Good morning. You're on the line with Captain Bob Bursma. Good morning. I don't know if you listened to President Trump yesterday at the Texas border speaking with the uh, uh, Texas governor about the Biden's migrant crime. Mm -hmm. and the gangs that are coming. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what is Holland doing to prepare for the overflow that will likely come here for the remaining part of when Biden is letting all these people come over the border. So I've not, I did not see that. Um, I had a number of things going on yeah. yesterday, so I didn't actually watch any television yesterday. Um, you know, I, I think as a city, uh, as any throughout uh, the nation, yes, I mean, um, we're constantly seeing change. We're constantly seeing immigration take place. Um, I think a big part of it for us is building that reputation within the city so that people can trust us. We're going to continue to do our job, do it professionally. Um, we're going to enforce the law as appropriate and uh, deal with the situations that come up as they happen. Um, I've been on the board of directors of La Oop for many, many years. Um, it's a great organization that really, um, makes a huge impact in our community and, uh, support them completely. I think it's a, a very 
very proud to have been a part of that organization. I'm still on the board of directors. Um, but also having relationships with organizations like that to where staff there can contact me directly um, or can refer people to our organization, understanding who we are, I think really helps when you have that level of trust within uh, the community. I think that really can go a long way towards um, just being able to be more effective at our job. Okay, and so when they get here, then then that will help a lot. I mean, it's hard to, I mean, I can't, you know, say what exactly is going to happen in every individual situation. I, I, I can't speak to that, but um, I think that's put us in a position where we're as prepared as possible. Um, because they say that um, Venezuela and El Salvador are emptying their present prisons, and these people are coming here. So, sounds like I, sounds I, like what, like what Castro did in Cuba too. Yeah, and I've heard those. I I can't speak to the veracity of that information. Um, I you know read some of the media reports, but I'm not you know in uh, in the as a, as a local law enforcement agency, we're not given that information on what exactly is going on. But um, obviously, if that is accurate, can be concerning. Whether or not it's accurate, I'm not. I can't say that whether that's true or not. But you know, again, it's. It's doing what we can here on a local level to be as prepared as possible, regardless of what happens. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much for the call. As we talk about uh, those who are moving on with their careers, mm-hmm. um, it, it brings me to a point that, well, I wouldn't say a point, but something I was thinking about. Uh, we had Valerie Weiss, the undersheriff of Ottawa County here a week ago, yes, along with uh, Sheriff uh, uh, Steve Kempker. Uh, her last day on the job was on Wednesday, and she was retiring for family reasons and uh, cited some of the reasons about being with her boys and you know putting a lot of things over the last 30 years family-wise away. And it just got me to think about some of the circumstances that led to my dad's retirement um, back in 1981 after uh, 26 years in the Detroit Police Department. And uh, he got a little embittered near the end. Um, maybe, you know, some couple of career things didn't go his way, but I always thought of it as he might've been on the job too long and might've seen too much of people's bad side and make him embittered about life. I don't know whether or not that's something that is addressed or is considered in more, as we call it now, modern day policing about making sure the officers aren't bringing their jobs home with them. Right. Oh, absolutely. It's There's a lot of discussions uh, related to that. Some of the research from recent years to even related to PTSD. Um, when we think of it, we often think of one or two significant events that somebody, particularly in the military, uh, has to go through the trauma that uh, they carry with them because of that. But there's also uh, what is found is it can be traumatic events, but nothing as significant, but small ones that happen over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so in, uh, as first responders and whether it be police, fire, paramedics, um, seeing these things repeatedly does build up with time and can cause PTSD. But because of that, there's a lot more discussion on getting appropriate therapy. We have a, um, a SISM team, which is the crisis stress incident management team that, when we have 
uh, an incident happen that's fairly traumatic. Sometimes the team members, and it's all peer-driven, it's not an administrative-driven thing, but it's you know a chance, basically like an emotional debrief to talk about how this impacted you emotionally. And I remember early on when they were talking about that, how that would happen as a, for example, to contrast the civil war versus, you know, world war one with the trench warfare and the bombings that went on nonstop and how in the civil war, when it got dark, the fighting ended. And so the armies would be sitting around the fire and some sergeant talking to some of the younger officers and talking them through what happened and helping them to almost really what they were doing is like emotionally dealing with what they had encountered that day and whereas in modern warfare, like they can't do that because it just goes on nonstop. And how there's actually value to what happened there sitting around the campfire in these camps. So it's kind of that kind of a concept of just to discuss these things, talk about it, meet with a therapist um, through uh, the city's, um, uh, I'm thinking, I'm trying to mind blank, but the, the counseling service that's available through the city, you can get a certain number every year that the city covers just because. It's that critical to be able to deal with these things um, because, yes, it if it's not dealt with emotionally, it can be very damaging. And, and, and that trauma you can care with you. And like I said, even to the point of ending up with, like, PTSD. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, we, we it's a different, different sort of atmosphere now. And as you mentioned a little bit earlier about the fact that, you know, have the requirement for a college degree before you get into right. the department. My dad did not have that college degree. Uh, he, he graduated from high school. His degree was two years serving in the Korean conflict. Sure. <laughs> and, so all the and, trauma he experienced. There. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And you just compound that as well. Let me add one final thing, Bob, and this is more of a general thing. And maybe it's, Biased on my part, being the son of a police officer. But a couple of days ago, I went into a convenience store to get a cup of coffee on the way to work. And this is like 3 o'clock, you know, 3, 3, 15 in the morning. And there were a couple of Ottawa County Sheriff's deputies there. Some might say, ooh, the fuzz. Me? I felt assured. I felt reassured. Hey, they're there. I'm fine. I'm in a good place. You know, and I you know, said hi and, and yep. Bill, but I don't know. Maybe it's just me. If I see officers in a building, for the most part, I'm saying, good. They're there. I'm. F that's a good place to be. I wish more people had that right. feeling. Well, I know when I work the road and work the night shift and my beat, I would make a point of the 24-hour stores. I would stop in at each one at least once a night, just checking with the clerk. Because in part to make them feel safe and know we're out there, but also if people are watching, well, we see the cops stop in there once in a while. Maybe that's not a place I want to go. I'll go hopefully somewhere else. Where there is nobody there. And the reason why I also brought this up is that four years ago when we went through the COVID-19 outbreak, many of the 24-hour convenience stores closed. Right. They don't do that. They are now reopening not only with the protocols being a little bit easier, but also more people getting jobs, which yes. which is very, very nice. Yes. As always, many things to discuss in law enforcement with Bob Bursma, but unfortunately, time has slipped away from us. As always, Bob Bursma, thank you very much for joining us and sharing not only some of the things going on in the department, but some of the 
you know, some of the behind the scenes of what it takes to wear the badge and uh, what, again, I appreciate what you guys do <laughs> naturally and we appreciate all that you do. Thank you. Well, and I enjoy being here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob Bursma. 99.7 and 1450 WHTC. CBS News with Steve Kathan. Pardon me with Deborah Rodriguez. Straight ahead, followed by WHTC News. And then we will have a little bit of open line ahead of Brian Spencer's What's New Around Holland. Then we'll be joined by Patrick Sisler of the Community Foundation of the Holland Zealand area. On 99.7 and 1450 WHTC.